0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Let's read the passage this morning, Revelation chapters 4 and 5. They're both short chapters, but powerful chapters. Listen to the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire Four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, heaven and on earth and under and, and might, just said, "Amen." Picture, may it strike all. Of you, as Creator, Redeemer, and His Judge things in your name, Jesus. One of the most famous reasons, by the way, a new app, the use of Technicolor, Of you who might not know, is Dorothy lives on a farm in K- and her M, her little dog, Toto, in the Midwest, there, well. And Dorothy made after the storm shelter, but she couldn't get in, and so she took refuge in the farmhouse, along with the dog, And she was there and knocked unconscious. And while she was unconscious, the whole house is lifted by the tornado and transported, without a scratch, by the way, to the wonderful land of Oz in its full technicolor glory. That worked out well for the farmhouse. And for Dorothy, and for Toto, and not so well for the wicked witch of the east, because the farmhouse landed on her. Not so great for her. But Dorothy awakens to find herself in this colorful and wonderful and mysterious and even a bit scary place. There's munchkins bouncing around and she doesn't know what to make of any of this, but fortunately she has kind of a tour guide in the Good Witch, who shows up, and puts her mind a bit at ease, and gifts her with something. The red ruby magical slippers of the now deceased Wicked Witch of the East. Red ruby, because technicolor was important, so the bright red slippers. Now the Wicked Witch of the West shows up, but she has no power in this land. She wants those slippers of her sister, but she can't have them, and she promises that she's going to get them. And with all the wonder that was the land of Oz, with all the, the, the fascinating things that are there, in truth, Dorothy really just wants to go home. But she doesn't have any idea how to get there. Fortunately for her, the Good Witch tells her, Well, you got to go see the wizard, the wizard of this great land. Well, where is he? Well, he's in the Emerald City. Well, how do I get to the Emerald City? And the good witch says, oh, no, 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 silly Dorothy. Put your phone away. No need for Google Maps. All you got to do is follow the yellow brick road. And off Dorothy goes, following in the yellow brick road, and by the way, singing a song creatively titled Follow the Yellow Brick Road, to which she knows all of the lyrics, which is a subtle miracle in the world of the Land of Oz. Off she goes. On her way, she encounters three pilgrims who also are seeking an an audience with the wizard because they have great needs to be met as well. A cowardly lion who is looking for courage, and a tin man who is looking for a heart, and a scarecrow who is looking for a brain, Big asks, but the wizard can provide. And so they become fast friends, and arm and arm, they make their way down the yellow brick road, all singing the song. Like any good story, there is peril on the journey, largely from the Wicked Witch of the West, making trouble for them, but they make their way to to the Emerald City and get an audience with the wizard, which is a little disappointing for them, as frightening and intimidating as it is, They stand before this curtain and the bellowing voice of the wizard and this frightening image of his big green head, but he asks them to to get the broom. He puts a condition on his meeting their request. Get the broom from the wicked uh, witch of the west. Take her power. Well, that's weird. And it seems a little bit hard to do, but somehow, through a series of events, she manages to do it, and the the Wicked Witch of the West is melted away, and they go back to the wizard for a second audience. Only this time, curious little Toto the dog, accidentally and without invitation, pulls the curtain back to reveal that the wizard is no wizard at all. He's just a man, a powerless man, a, a charlatan, really. No power to give courage, no power to give compassion, no power to give knowledge, no power to give direction. Those are the things that they were seeking. No power at all. A fraud. But worry not, because at the heart of the story of the the Wizard of Oz is something deeply American, deeply pragmatic deeply independent, deeply self-reliant, and that is, hey, you didn't actually need the wizard at all. You never needed the wizard. In fact, all of those things you looked for, you found in and of yourself. And lo and behold, on their perilous journey, the cowardly lion found courage. And the tin man found compassion, and the scarecrow found knowledge. Turns out they didn't need the wizard at all. How very self-reliant of them. Of course, Dorothy didn't get her way home, but the good witch comes along and says, "Mm, you had the power to get home all along. All you got to do is tap those ruby red slippers and say there's no place like home. And you're there. Which, of course, is exactly what happens. Back to black and white Kansas, back to the farmhouse, and Uncle Henry and Aunt Auntie M tending to her wound and not believing the story, and that's kind of how it ends. But the reason that I'm sharing this story with you is to put two things in front of you as we consider our text this morning. The first one is this. How much of your faith is influenced by this kind of idea of self-reliance? How much do you look at God and think similarly to the way you would look at the wizard? I don't actually need God. I kind of need him. It's an important idea, but I'm really kind of my own self-made person. Maybe you hold something that's kind of similar to the old, old adage, God helps those who help themselves. Which is really wrong, by the way. It's an interesting thought. Maybe at first when you hear it, you think, well, no, I don't do that. But, but deep down, there's a kind of a sense in which you go, God plays a part, but I've got, you know, I do my thing too. The second thing I want to draw your attention to kind of piggybacks on the first thing, too, and that's this. Of course, it's true that Dorothy and her friends peek behind the curtain and find that there's no wizard at all. It's a a fraud, a sham, how disappointing that would be. But when the Apostle John is summoned to heaven to peek behind the curtain, as it were, but actually to be invited to come through the front door and to see the throne room, he sees the one true God who is not powerless, but all-powerful, who is the depiction of power and courage, full of compassion, having absolute knowledge of all things, and is the great shepherd, no one better to give direction. He is the one true God who has absolute power over all things. And it's because of that that he is worthy of worship as creator, as we're going to see, as redeemer, as we're going to see, and as the one who orchestrates all of history to exercise judgment against the wicked and reward for his saints. Let me give you the picture from one more vantage point before we jump into the text as a way to get a sense of what I'm talking about here. How many of you have ever seen a sign? Oh, that's my depiction of the throne room. I should have moved to that first. How many of you have ever seen a sign like this? It's the airport. And when you go to the airport, you inevitably get confused. I need to go to gate A. Well, guess what? Gate A is in the same place as every other gate in the alphabet. Oh, and the baggage claim, and the train, and the exit That's not very clarifying, is it? It's anything but uh, easy. That's the last thing it is. Here's another one. This is a real sign in a real airport. That is not clarifying. That is the depiction of, of confusion. Airports are confusing. They are, are they not? When you're in an airport, it's crazy. It's confusing to get to airports. It's confusing to be in airports. They're full of people going all different directions. There's voices over the PA announcing uh, gates opening and planes being canceled and planes being delayed. And there's vendors everywhere. And there's baggage people running along. And there's a million people who are getting off that little thing that they take in the middle of it that that, that travels you faster and then stops. You know what I'm talking about? It's like that little, that little flat escalator that you can gain time, but you, you never time the getting off right. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You're, you're walking along and you get the fast one and you're walking on it and then all of a sudden you're back on regular ground and it trips you up. There's a whole bunch of those people. The place is just confusing. It's crazy confusing. But imagine if you had it from a different vantage point. Imagine if you could see the airport from a place like this, the control tower. From this vantage point, things would look a bit different, would it not? From here, you would get a view like this, where you could see all the planes in the sky taking off, all the planes in the sky landing with the technology and all the people around. You could see where the people were in the airport, them traveling in, parking in their cars. Everything going on in the airport would be clear to them and orchestrated by them. You get the picture. The throne room is kind of like the control room. It's a rare privilege for someone to be invited to the control room or the control tower in an airport. But when you do, you kind of go, oh, now I see. It's a far rarer privilege for anyone to be invited into the throne room of God. But John is. And because John is, and he's charged to write about it, every single saint in the history of the church who gets to read the word of God gets a picture of the throne room gives you a sense that God is actually in control of the life that seemingly boots on the ground, is crazy chaotic. Everybody relates to that, right? Life has a kind of an airport vibe, like, I don't know what's going on. I could make a much better sign than that. That's not helpful at all. What are you doing, God? Yeah, let's come up to the the control tower. I'm actually in charge. And there's a deep-seated Comfort in that. And out of that sovereign control comes worship. Because if he, he alone is worthy of that worship. So I want to do something here. I want to kind of paint a little bit of a picture to kind of place the throne room in the big picture of the book. So I'm going to just put this out here for you. There's the opening letter and the vision of the glorified Christ. The letter to the seven churches that we've been through. Those letters. The church militant are in the old fallen creation. I want to draw your attention to something here. When you look at the letters to the churches, they are in a fallen state. We call it the church militant. They're struggling. They have things that Jesus commends them about, things that he condemns them about, and promises he makes to them, rather specific promises, that find rather specific fulfillment at the end of the book of Revelation in the new creation where there's no more sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, the promises that were made in the beginning in the letters, specific literary components of that are brought to bear again at the end. Old creation, old order, fallen order, broken church, militant church, church in glory. Promises God makes to his saints, promises fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. I want you to see that. And after the letters, you get the throne room that leads us into all the stuff in the middle that everybody fights about, that everybody disagrees about, that everybody debates about, what I'm going to call the pictorial depiction of God's plan to bring about his perfect justice and mercy, the new heavens and the new earth, where the church resides, not broken or militant anymore, but in the new creation fully restored. So let's just narrow this down and look at it again real quickly. You have the throne room, then you have the pictorial depictions of God's plan. And that lays out in seven different vantage points to see God's exercise of judgment against wickedness and his use of suffering and persecution for the sanctification of the saints. That's chapter 6 through 20. Well, the reason I want you to see that is because I want you to see, and that leads us to the new heavens and the new earth of the church. What I want you to see here is 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 why is the throne room here? You get the letters and we're ushered up to the throne room so that, he, that God can say all the things that you're struggling with, all the promise has, promises I've made to you will come to pass. Let me show you how. Come up to the control tower and let me give you a, glance, a, a look at the sovereign God who exercises his sovereignty, as we, again, as we're going to see, as the crea- creator, as the redeemer, and as the one who exercises judgment over the wicked and blessing for the saints. That all comes to bear in these verses. And it comes to bear as we see, because what we're going to see in chapter 5 is that Jesus is the one who's worthy to do what? Open the scroll with the seven seals, which is the depiction of the first cycle of God's judgment against the wicked. Every time a seal is opened, you see that in chapter 6 through 8, there's a judgment exercised. And then there's an interlude in between where the saints are, are, are encouraged by God and preserved by God. And second coming comes. Judgment comes. And then we see that cycle again in the trumpets. And we see it again in the characters that that we look at all these different dynamics and the 144,000. Then we see it again in the bowls. We see it seven different times. Seven's the number of completion. The complete history of God ordained from the first coming of Christ to the second coming and consummation of all things. That's how this lays out. I want you to see that. That's the big picture vantage point. Oh, church, that I wrote to you in the seven letters, come up here, take a look at who's in charge and how I'm going to orchestrate all of history to bring about vindication for the righteous and justice and judgment against the wicked and bring it to a consummated end in the new heavens and the new earth. I got this. Right? Just say yes. (laughs) Let's take a look at what this looks like with all that setting it up. After this, this is the letters, I looked, and behold, a door standing open. Not a curtain to peek behind without permission, but a summoning. And the voice I heard, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and by the way, who is this voice? This is Jesus. If you turn back to to chapter 1, in the opening words, we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, which I've mentioned to you many times, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, and he lists them. And then it says in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw the vision of the glorified Christ. Who is the voice? Jesus. Jesus is saying to John, come up here. Jesus is summoning John through the front door of the throne room. I will show you what must take place after this. That is, after my coming throughout history to the end. I will show you. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now, I want to just take a minute to draw a couple things out here. Back in the Old Testament, when Moses is charged with instructions about how to make the tabernacle, and later the the Israelite king, Solomon, makes the temple, which is the tabernacle is a tent that can be broken down and set up. The the temple is stationary. It's about the temple, right? Those are blueprints, as the writer of Hebrews says, are copies of of the temple not made with hands. That's this place. This is the temple not made with hands. This is the holy place that God makes and fills with His Spirit. And here's what I want you to see. When when John is ushered into this temple, into the throne room, the very first thing, the central thing of importance in the description of the whole place is what? Throne. Throne throne is the thing that is the focal point of the entire description of the throne room. Throne speaks to his kingly status, to his royalty. What's the first thing I want you to see when I go into the throne room? Well, it's the throne, right? The throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So we have a couple of things to draw your attention to here. We have precious stones. And precious stones were were, uh, seen as hard to get in the ancient world. That usually required international trade and certain resources and wealth. So we have the wealth of the king. We have the royalty of the king. We have the international nature of his kingdom. It knows no bounds. That's kind of imaged here. In that, and by the way, this list of stones is, trunca- is a truncated list. We get a much fuller list in the new heavens and the new earth at the end. But something else is interesting to note. And if you look at your, uh, the, the, the uh, instruction sheet here that I gave to the small group leaders, I give a little bit more detail here. Um, we get kind of this ambiguous description of the one who's seated on the throne. We don't get a great detail. Boy, when we get the picture of the glorified Christ in chapter one, we get the biggest, the the clearest, most profound, detailed description of Christ and his glory. But of the Father, we don't get that. He had the appearance of Jasper and Cardigan. That's all we get. Why do you think that is? Because we're charged, even from the law itself, to not make graven images, we're charged to not know that. God is a spirit. Our confessions teach us that does not have a body. And so it, he defies description like that. Now sometimes when we read in scripture, we read about God's arm or his hand or his flaring nostrils and his anger or his love or his mercy or his strength, the strong arm of the Lord, but those are all what we call anthropomorphic language. just a fancy word that means it's a way for us to relate to God, but it doesn't mean that he actually has an arm He doesn't get that until the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh in the Incarnation. And so it's worth noting here, this interesting little thing, that we don't get a great deal of detail in this description. But we're told about something else. Around the throne, more focused on the throne, was a rainbow. An emerald rainbow. And Rainbow brings us back to Noah and the sign of the covenant promising God's faithfulness to preserve his people, to preserve the whole of the earth. We sometimes refer to the the covenant that God makes with Noah as a universal covenant. Because believers and unbelievers alike get to see the sign of that covenant. And believers and unbelievers alike get to benefit from the promise of that covenant that never again will God flood the earth. It's universal. But there's something else to be thought about here, too. And that is, in Ezekiel, in chapter 1 in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this profound vision to open up the book of Ezekiel. And in it, he sees these four living creatures that we're going to see. That's where these four living creatures come from. But we're told that those creatures each have a wheel, what was described as a wheel within a wheel. And what's depicted here is the throne of God. And the throne of God that's on wheels, which is kind of a simple way to say, God's throne isn't stationary. It can be anywhere and everywhere, wherever he wants to be. In other words, he's omnipresent. He can be everywhere. God's throne has no geographical limit. It goes everywhere. And around that throne, in Ezekiel's image, a bow, a rainbow. And so what we're seeing here is is, is John's describing something that's not different, not categorically different, but again, like the image of the throne that the prophet Ezekiel saw. Remember, 70% of the book of, of Revelation is allusion to the Old Testament. We don't have to sit and wonder what this means. Look through the Old Testament. It's here to see. This is further depiction of the throne room. So we have more description We got the throne, we got the image of the one on the throne, we got the bow around the throne, and then around the throne were more thrones. Seems like an apt thing to call this place the throne room. A lot of thrones going on. 24 thrones to be exact, and here's something interesting to think about. These thrones have power and authority like any throne would, but these thrones the power and authority they have is derived from the central throne that is God's. Who are the elders and why 24 of them? There's a number of thoughts here. I put some footnotes in the sheet if you're interested in looking at that. The, the division of the, of the, of the priests uh, in, Chronicles, in Chronicles chapter 24, ironically. But, um, but the more likely thought is that this depicts the entirety of the people of God. The 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament combined with the 12 apostles of the New Testament making 24, remember what we said about numbers in the beginning of our series here, uh, 3 and 4 and 7 and 10 and 12 all have aspects of completion to them. 12 has completion, 12 multiplied has greater completion, if you will, in, in image language. This is the entirety of the people of God represented here. And it's interesting to note when you read through Revelation that the, the elders are a little bit distinct. And so it's, it's an apocalyptic representation of the people of God, the whole people of God. And so around the throne are these 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were the 24 elders. And notice something, they're clothed in white garments, which is a common theme, with golden crowns on their heads. Who does that sound like? sounds like Jesus, the image of the Son of Man from Daniel, and that's pictured here. Not that they have it or that they're the Son of Man, but their purity and their authority are derived from the one true God, who is the Lamb, who is the Son of Man. More descriptions. We're not done describing it. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder. Now, this is a a, a motif that's repeated a number of different times after this in the book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 8. We see it in chapter 11. What are we seeing in various parts of those seven cycles? I think it's in the trumpets and then later on in the bowls, I believe. But what does picturing the throne room with flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder remind you of? should remind you of Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai getting the law in the terrifying space of the dark clouds and the rumblings which is God giving his law but also exercising his judging authority over anyone who would break that law. It's a healthy, reverent fear of God depicted in these things that are unsettling. And think about that for a moment. Every one of us has this sort of innate sense. If you, if you surprisingly see a flash of lightning or the rumbling of thunder, a little part of you goes, oh, right? Except for the people that are trying to be cool, like, I'm good. They're wrong, though. They're not good. That's kind of innately what it does, but it's a depiction of power and authority and judgment. I want you to see that. There's a picture of judgment here from for, coming forth from the throne is that before the throne more the scriptures around the throne we're burning seven torches of fire what are they well the scripture tells us what they are they're the seven spirits of god which we've looked at seven being the number of completion the full and complete expression of the holy spirit the fullness of the spirit here before the throne no need to speculate about the burning torches it's explained for us, and then we get this more to scriptures. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What is that about? I make note of that in the sheet as well. There is there's, there's uh, places where in Solomon's temple he had this huge sea of bronze. Some think maybe that's the case. But it's more likely that it's connected to the Red Sea because later on in chapter 15, verse 2, we see this phrase again. A sea of glass mingled with fire and it comes right before the saints singing the song of Moses. What is the Red Sea? Deliverance. God's deliverance of his people. One more thing to think about with the sea too. The sea in the Old Testament is the depiction of chaos and of evil. And here, this sea before the throne of God is utterly subdued, smooth, like glass, completely under control in the presence of God. No evil, nothing to fear, no chaos. Smooth. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are the four living creatures. Again, these are the creatures from Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1. And the four living creatures are full of eyes in front, and behind and we get a description of them the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and if you go back and you read Isaiah there are excuse me Ezekiel they're not exactly the same that's important to note in apocalyptic literature it's not a mimicking or a citation or a quote we're seeing progress in moving here but there's a whole lot of illusion, a whole lot of similarities. And so what I want you to see here in some manner is that the, the 24 elders represent the entirety of the people of God, the image bearers, and the four living creatures in some manner represent the whole of the created order. All of the creatures. who are going to do what, by the way? Worship, because that's what creation does. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, never cease to say. This is all they do, 24-7, as it were. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the the echo of the beginning of the book, too. John says this is where the letter's from, the one who was and is and is to come. And what did we say about that then? And we'll say again, this speaks to the eternality of God, but also the promise of the gospel that he is the one who is to come, to return, to gather his people. That's a central part of the gospel uh, proclamation. But notice something else here. All of these, all All that the four living creatures do, they just do this one thing, they just declare the holiness of God. Now in the Bible, when you see a word repeated, it is for emphasis. So if we wanted to say that something was really holy, we would say it's really holy, or like super holy, or really, really holy. We would put an adjective in front of it. But in the Hebrew language and mimicked in the the New Testament in Greek is the repeat of the word. So in the Bible, if something is holy, it's holy. If it's really holy, it's holy, holy. But if it is superlatively holy, that is the apex of holiness, it's holy, holy, holy. There's no four holies. We don't get four holies. In other words, what I'm saying to you is what they do is they repeat the threefold declaration of the holiness of God, which is the apex of holiness. That is to say that the four living creatures are praising God, declaring not that he somehow uh, models the perfect expression of holiness, but that he is holiness. That he is utterly holy, absolutely holy, the very source of holy, he and he alone. That's what they declare. Grab some awe here. See that. This is the thing that I like to refer to, like, here they are in heaven for all eternity, and all they do is declare the holiness of God, and there's nothing but joy. There's no complaining. The four living creatures aren't grumbling that somehow they've been at this for a millennia too, and they're tired. None of that. No demand for a little me time. Nope. Because there's no sin, and so all they do, fulfilling the very purpose of who they are, is to declare the holiness of God let that sink in let that steep it's profound but it's not just the four living creatures because whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever there's the declaration of, of his, his, his eternality whenever they do it which by the way was what day and night without ceasing So they always are doing it. Whenever they do it, the 24 elders join in. Fall down before him who is seated on the throne, 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 throne. Getting the throne thing? Lots of throne in the text. And they worship him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before him. There have authority and power, but they submit to him and acknowledge him as the source of their power. And what do they say? Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord, excuse me, and God to receive glory and honor and power, why? For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. So the creatures, the four living creatures that represent all of the created order, the 24 elders that represent the entirety of the, of the people of God, gather together to do what? To praise God because he is worthy as Creator. I want you to see this is a common way to look at God. The whole of the Bible is kind of broken up this way. God in his creation and God in his redemption. You see it in the, the letter to the Colossians, for example, in the Christ poem. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, but he's also the head of the church. Creation and redemption. This dynamic is at play here as well. What do the Twenty-four elders and the four living creatures do. They worship him as the eternal creator. Not done yet, though. There's more. As we move to chapter 5, we get another description. We've got a lot of description about the throne and a little bit of description about the one sitting on the throne, and now we get a little bit more. John saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. John sees a scroll, and it's a very full scroll. It's got writing inside. It's got writing on the back. There's lots of stuff in the scroll. It's sealed with seven seals, seven being the number of completion. It's perfectly sealed, and no one except for the one who's worthy can open that seal. And I saw a mighty angel, John says, proclaiming with a loud voice, really kind of asking, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now remember, we have Jesus summoning John up to heaven. We have the Father on the throne and the burning torches before the throne as the seven spirits, which are the Holy Spirit, and so what this is, in apocalyptic language, is a declaration of the fact that no one else, no created thing, no none of the 24 elders, none of the four living creatures, none of the myriad of angels, no one but Jesus is worthy. No one. And John sees this and it breaks his heart. I began to weep. I want to take a second here to just pause and ask you to think about this for a minute. Are there times in your life when you wonder where God is? And does it make you weep? Or are you just really comfortable in your life here and now? When John sees the scroll and the need for it to be opened and no one is worthy, it breaks his heart. He doesn't just weep, he weeps loudly. Because no one is worthy. He weeps at his own shortcoming and the shortcoming of all around. He weeps loudly because no one can see into the scroll. Can you imagine that for a moment? Imagine being in heaven and sitting in that place where you would have the privilege to look at the throne And see that the Father has something in his hand that he needs to show you. And no one's worthy to do it. Does that make you weep? It should. It should make you weep. It should break your heart. John is comforted, though. One of the elders said, weep no more. And look what he says. Behold, who is worthy? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The priestly line. And it's not the priestly line in, in, in uh, uh, Genesis, but it's the line that Jesus come from. The lion from Genesis uh, 49. And the root of David from Isaiah 11. We see the line of the kingship of David, and we see the imagery of the king in the lion. He is worthy to open the scroll and he can open the scroll to the seven seals and be, be, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. A couple things to tease out here that are really important to draw out. A couple things that are really significant. See the dual imagery here. The lion and the lamb in the sun. and also note that central to the temple is sacrifice central to the temple is sacrifice that's what the temple is and so here we have the picture of the lamb what are we told we saw so, we saw he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain which is a beautiful picture of the death and resurrection of the lamb of god now displayed as the once-for-all sacrifice in the throne room. Not a repeated sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice in the throne room, not made with hands. You get this interesting language. He's got seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So it's interesting language, but there's a description here. Well, what are they? They're the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. In other words, the outpouring of the Spirit It's like Pentecost here. And the lamb goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne because he alone is worthy to do exactly that. Weep. No more. And what happens when he takes the scroll? Well, we're told that the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they grab some instruments. They're holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We have a roll here. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. For God here is the gospel from every tribe and language and people and nation. There's the, the international broadness no boundaries to the kingdom, and you've made them a kingdom of priests, an echo of Exodus 19. This is the role of the kingdom. We're a kingdom of priests in the kingdom to proclaim the good news of God. And they shall reign on the earth. So we've seen the 24 elders and the four living creatures praise God, declaring His holiness and praising God as creator, and now we're seeing them praising the Lamb as Redeemer. Not done yet, though. Then I looked, John did, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So we have the 24 elders. We have the four living creatures. And added to that now comes an innumerable amount of angels to do what? To praise God, to worship him, They join in the song, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So who do we have here? We have what? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, the innumerable angels. What else is there? John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, basically everything else. So I got four living creatures, I got 24 elders, I got all the angels, and I got every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, everything, praising God. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures did what? Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now John looks at this, and he's about to see Jesus open the seals one at a time which casts judgment on the world. And he's going to see it with the trumpets with the bowls and all of those cycles. And this gives him comfort that the sovereign god oops the sovereign god who is is sovereign as eternal creator and as eternal redeemer and as judge is in control of all of that. John, who is in a partner in the tribulation and patient endurance in Jesus that is in the kingdom in the first century, and you and I in the 21st century take comfort that God remains on his throne and receives worship because of who he is as creator, because of who he is as redeemer, because of who he is as judge. So let's reflect for just a moment. If God is in fact worthy of worship from the four living creatures and the 24 elders as creator. And if the Lamb, that is God the Son, our Redeemer, is worthy of receiving worship from the four living creatures and the 24 elders, as well as innumerable angels and every creature in in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And since God has given John and therefore all who read his word a glimpse into the heavenly throne room, a peek behind the curtain an invite to the control tower, the place from where God exercises his absolute sovereign authority to bring judgment against wickedness and reward to his saints. If that's true, then shouldn't our whole lives be an outpouring of worship? If the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the innumerable angels and every other creature on earth recognizes because of his sovereignty and creation and redemption and his authority as judge that they are to worship, I don't want you to be left out. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be the one who stands before God and says, yeah, I didn't offer you worship. I know everything else around me was. They saw in you creator, redeemer, judge, sovereign, powerful, all-knowing, full of compassion, the great shepherd who leads his people and vindicates the righteous and exercises judgment against the wicked. He alone is worthy of worship from the throne room, from our hearts here in the church militant, from everywhere on earth and under the earth in the whole creation. He is in charge. This is our charge and our call. If there was ever a time to contemplate the importance of worship, it's when we see in the throne room those who are not encumbered by sin declaring the holiness and offering worship to God without ceasing. This should give us a longing for that time what would it be like for us to not have sin infecting us with self-sufficiency and independence from God? Sin just keeping us from falling on our knees and worshiping him who is sovereign and in control. Sin that keeps us from seeing the joy of being creatures made by our creator who delights to redeem his people and give glory to his son in doing it who binds us to his son as a bride. In the marriage banquet feast of heaven, that's a celebration. We're too busy with ourself and work and things we've got to do, TV shows we've got to watch. We charge you to be a people who make worshiping your God the number one priority that expresses the very essence of your nature. You're a creature made to worship the creator. So let's worship. Let's worship now by coming to the table because this is what we do. We respond. This is what coming to the table is about. This is worshiping the lamb who's seated on the throne for he was slain and shed his blood. And that's what we do when we come to the table. We worship him as redeemer. Let's do that. created a time in our service for us to have confession of sin I want to charge you if you're not confessed of your sin to let the, the elements pass by and know that when you do that you'll actually be demonstrating reverence for the table as the elements are being passed out. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and for this table, this sacrament, this visible display of the gospel. Father, we ask now, as we do each week, that you would take this cup, this juice in place of wine and this bread, And you would set them apart. You would consecrate them for a holy purpose. And they would become, to our faith, your body broken and your blood shed for forgiveness, for restoration, for joy in forgiveness, for restored intimacy, as we talked about last week, for the promise of being seated with you on that throne as co regents. Worshipping you as creator and as redeemer. Thank you for this time. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.